Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast, episode 170. I'm Jason Louv, and my guest today is Paul Levy, a pioneer in the field of spiritual emergence and a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner for nearly 40 years. He is the founder of the Awaken in the Dream community in Portland, Oregon, and the author of several books, including Dispelling Watiko and Watiko. He lives in Portland, Oregon. His book that we're talking about today is called Undreaming Watiko, Breaking the Spell of the Nightmare Mind Virus. From the back of the book, the profound and radical Native American idea of Wetiko, a virus of the mind, underlies the collective insanity and evil that is destructively playing out around the world. Yet, as Paul Levy reveals in depth, encoded within Wetiko itself lies the very medicine needed to combat the mind virus and heal both ourselves and our world. Levy begins by investigating how the process of becoming triggered, wounded, or falling into suffering can help us better understand the workings of Wetiko in a way that transforms our struggles into opportunities for awakening. He reveals the source of Wetiko, unhealed multi-generational ancestral trauma, which is acted out and propagated through the family. He highlights one of the primary archetypes currently activated in the collective unconscious of humanity, the wounded healer or shaman and shows how recognizing this archetype can help us as we navigate a collective descent into the underworld of the unconscious, a true bardo realm between our past and future worlds. Drawing on the work of Carl Jung, Rudolf Steiner, Henry Corbin, Wilhelm Reich, and Nicholas Burdiev, the author introduces the inner guide, a daemon slash angel that lives within us as an ally in our encounters with the demonic energy of Wetiko. He explores how to cultivate symbolic awareness, interpreting events in our lives symbolically, like a dream, as a path to creating meaning, which alchemically transmutes the poison of Wetiko into medicine for healing the psyche. Ultimately, the author reveals that the best protection and medicine for Wetiko is to connect with the light of our true nature by becoming who we truly are. So, without any further ado, please welcome Paul Levy. Why don't we just start off, uh, why don't I let you introduce yourself and your work, which you've been focusing on for 20 years, I read in this book. Or even 30, yeah, totally. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, well, my name is is Paul, and I'm uh, I've been writing, you know, for a few decades about this mind virus. The Native Americans call it the Watiko mind virus, and um, it's at the bottom of what of the collective madness that's playing out in our world. And um, and you know, the idea of a mind virus, people can hear that, and it sounds New Age or woo, but it, what it's really pointing out, in essence, is that the source of our collective madness and the solution, by the way, is to be found within the human psyche. And that's a no-brainer. I mean, where else could our collective madness be found? And um, and every spiritual tradition in you know throughout the history of the world has been pointing at this mind virus. You know, they all have different names for it, and not just spiritual traditions, but thinkers and philosophers and visionary artists. They've all been pointing at that there's something in the human psyche that's antagonistic to us stepping fully into our life. So in other words, it's not just that our species has fallen asleep, it's as if there's some sort of malevolent energy that's invested in keeping us asleep. And so what my work, and it came out of my own personal experience with this mind virus that literally just destroyed my entire family. I haven't had a family for over 20 years, um, I mean, I'm all good. I have a huge soul family, but, um, you know, it got my attention. It was like some pathogen had gotten into the Petri dish of my family that, you know, was just separating us and dividing us and turning us against each other and literally consumed my family. And then, you know, I actually, I, you know, as a result of this, I was so deeply traumatized that I had, I went so inwards, I had a spiritual awakening in 1981, but it got me in deep trouble because I immediately got diagnosed and hospitalized. And I knew, you know, that I was having an awakening. That's what saved me. But I began to recognize, wait, the same darker evil energy that had come into my family through the person, it's not important who, but of my father, I don't need to go into the story, was now coming through the system of psychiatry and then like an iteration of refractal, I began to realize, wait a second, that's the same sort of this malevolent energy that's informing and giving shape to the body politic of the world. And I began to realize, oh my God, there's like this non-local energetic evil force in potential that's actually enfolded holographically throughout all scales of the universe. And I began to, to recognize, wait a second, it's a quantum phenomena that encoded, hidden encoded in this pathogen, in this mind virus. It's actually helping us to wake up. It's actually catalyzing the evolution of our species. Being a quantum phenomena, it's like a superposition of states. It's the deepest evil and the highest sublime blessing, you know, conjoined in one phenomena. And just like light, well, how does it manifest as a wave or a particle depends on how it's observed this mind virus, how it's going to manifest, is it going to take us down and kill us? Or is it going to awaken us? That depends on if we recognize what it's revealing to us. Because okay. this virus is a revelation. Uh, you know, this is what Jung was pointing out when he says God has placed a special purpose in evil. He actually says this. And in a sense, that's what my work is about, is trying to like help people to see this mind virus, because it only has power over us to the extent that we don't see it. Because it's a form of, of mind blindness. You know, the Bible talks about this mysterious mind blindness that correlates with a closed heart. The idea being that as long as we are blind to the mind virus and the blindness is itself the mind virus in action, 
then it has power over us and it can kill okay. us. But as soon as we illumine how it works in the world and within our unconscious minds, then all of a sudden we take away its power over us and we become empowered. Okay, great. So do you want to really dig down and define, excuse me, define what Watiko is? I mean, I read in your book that when you talk about it to people, they have a tendency to just suddenly decide they know what it means and walk away. But maybe re really, really dig in and, and, and diagnose yeah, yeah, at the yeah. root what the problem is. Yeah. So, so no, I appreciate that. So on the one hand, it's a mind blindness, it's a, but it's a particular form, a peculiar form of mind blindness that actually thinks it's sighted and, you know, so it does not know it's blind and thinks it's more sighted than people who actually see. So it operates through the blind spots of the psyche, through the projective tendencies of the mind. We're always projecting onto the inkblot of, of the world, you know, interpreting and placing meaning on it. And then being like a dream, this world then instantaneously reflects back our perception where we become trans. So, you know, we become trans by our own mind. Um, so an example in a dream, in a night dream, right? If you're holding a viewpoint, well, what is a night dream, but a reflection of your own mind, whatever viewpoint you're holding instantaneously gets reflected by the dream because the dream is nothing other than your own mind in reflected form. So if we're holding a viewpoint, say, for example, oh, this universe we're in is objective is separate from us, right? We hold that viewpoint in a dream, the dream instantaneously will reflect back giving us all the evidence confirming the seeming objective truth of our viewpoint that the world exists objectively we now have proof confirming our perspective as being objectively true so we become more fixed in our viewpoint of seeing the world in the dream as being objective the more we see the world that way the more the world just confirms our perspective giving us evidence ad infinitum in other words that's a feedback loop whose origin is to be found within our own mind. And what I'm describing is that we've literally hypnotized ourselves by our own creative genius. That's what Watiko does. For example, in the apocryphal text, they talk about Watiko. They call it the counterfeiting spirit. Of course, that got written out of the Bible. It's in the apocryphal text because I point out Watiko was on the editorial board. It doesn't want to be exposed. But the counterfeiting spirit, it impersonates us. It's a master mime. It puts us on, it offers us a false version of ourselves. And then if we're not awake in that moment and we identify with Watiko's version of ourselves, oh, I'm wounded, I'm traumatized, I'm a victim of abuse, then it has us. Then the mind virus can manipulate us and control us. And um, that's why I point out that the greatest protection against the mind virus is to be in touch with our nature because when we're in touch with our true nature this mind virus has no currency over us it has no power over us at all but as soon as we identify with its version of who we are this is why Jung says the greatest danger facing humanity is to identify with a fictitious identity that's what Watiko it's it's uh it, you know it is the separate self you know thinking oh I exist separate you know from the rest of the universe that is the mind virus and then as soon as we identify in that way with this fictitious identity that Watiko is offering us, then we're on, then we become one of its minions. And think about what I'm describing. What I'm describing is that, you see, Watiko can't steal our soul, but it tricks us into giving it away. And then we identify with who we're not. We forget who we actually are. 
and we disconnect from our creative agency. That's a recipe for madness. And that's what's eco in a nutshell. And so we, with my work, I could spend the rest of the hour just imaginatively describing Watiko because that's what I'm trying to do is help people to see okay. it. Because as long as we don't see it, it has power over us. As soon as we see it, it's rendered powerless and we become empowered. It seemed to me from reading the book that, so actually, well, just from what you're saying, it sounds like part of what you're saying is that it's the illusion of a separate self but also reading the book, it seemed like you were pointing out that it, it has to do with people's reactions to each other and how we we react and trigger each other's trauma and, and pass trauma around. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the main channels that you know, through which Watiko operates is in relationships. So, you know, and we're always, you know, to the extent that I have an unhealed trauma, I'm going to unconsciously recreate it. That's the repetition compulsion. It's like my unconscious way of trying to like actually unlock the trauma. So it's simultaneously the pathology and the potential medicine in a superposition of states. You know, when we do that, when we dream up our trauma and we're all in trauma, I mean, our species is in trauma. And so the idea being that when we're in relationship, particularly intimate relationship, you know, our deepest core wounds get played out and projected out and acted out via our partner. And if there's a container in the relationship, great, then we can unpack and decipher and and really free up that energy that's bound up in the compulsion to repeat our trauma into creativity and love. But if we don't have that container, you know, which is our alchemical term, the hermetic vessel, you know, then we're just going to project and play out our stuff and the person will feel not seen. And then I feel misunderstood and then I'm reacting and then I get triggered and think the problem is outside of myself. All of that is inspired by and food for Watiko, you know, definitely. Okay. Maybe can you, uh, just so people can get more of a handle on this, can you maybe give some, some actual examples of this playing out in your, in your own life or that you've observed? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, a very sort of like essential example and I point out it's the core psychological process and dynamic that underlies Watiko is when we project the shadow. So say if I'm not in touch with my shadow, right? And so I inwardly, you know, am sort of disassociated from my shadow. Now, you know, think about being in a dream. If I'm in a dream, because a dream is a reflection of our inner process, you know, just externalized as the dreamscape. If I'm not owning my own shadow, what am I going to do? I'm going to be unconsciously projecting it outside of myself. And then into the dream will walk a carrier of my projection, a person or group of people who actually embody my split off projected out shadow. And they will be like embodying it or acting it out. And now I have evidence that, oh, my shadow, the evil that I'm not dealing with in myself, there it is outside of myself. They are very convincingly incarnating it. And so then, you know, what happens is that when you amplify that situation, um, I actually, in whatever form, try to destroy them, which is an externalization or this dramatization of my initial internal process of trying to exterminate my own darkness. Now I'm playing out my inner process of trying to exterminate my own darkness. I'm actually unconsciously acting out in the world by trying to destroy the carrier of my shadow, be it Putin or, you know, whoever, whoever is the recipient of our shadow projection. Now, keep in mind that Jung calls shadow projection the lie. 
you know, and just by association, who's the liar? It's the devil. Shadow projection is the shadow, is evil acting itself out. That is the actual act of of the actual of the darkness. And then by doing that, by then when I amplify trying to destroy the person who's carrying my shadow, I you know, take a look at what I'm describing. I literally have become possessed by the very evil that I'm trying to destroy out there, which is complete insanity. And that's the deeper psychological mechanism. I mean, think about how we're scapegoating, you know, Russia right. or Putin or whoever. Just pick. Well, the Russia is is uh, did go to war with Ukraine. It's not like there's not an issue there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but people are under the illusion that the war started a year ago. That's a complete lie. Like all these scholars are pointing out, you know, the war really started 30 years ago when NATO expanded. And then in 2014 with the Maidan coup, which was sponsored by the U.S., you know, there's it all depends. Well, I, I don't want to get off track, but I would be careful about laying the blame for Russia invading Ukraine with NATO. That's a distortion of what happened. No, no I'm not. I'm not. I'm not blaming. I'm just saying that it's a co-dreaming. I'm just saying that the idea of thinking the war started a year ago is a complete mistake. That's to be totally under the propaganda. And that's a lie. I, I don't think anyone believes that the that war out. only started a year ago. I mean, I think people are pretty aware of, you know, at least Euromaidan and things like that going back to 2014 and the annexation of Crimea and so forth. Yeah, a lot I, of people I know are clueless about it, particularly okay, Americans. Well, you talk well about I'm American and I'm talking about and they, Americans. They, and they say, and they say, what? What's that? I said, I'm American and I'm talking about Americans that I know. Yeah, yeah, but I'm talking about Americans I know. And, like, okay. you know, there are very few people I know who actually are tracking, you know, who aren't. So I'm just basically saying that the typical American is brainwashed to the point where I'm like, my head explodes every day when I encounter the level of brainwashing in the typical American. And that's just my experience. Okay. You might have a different experience and that's fine, but that's my experience. So I guess what I was fishing for before, just to, just to get back on the rails of the conversation, um, um, just, that was a, a slight diversion, but, um, I guess what I was fishing for before is like, um, stories, like specific stories from your life of how this is, uh, how this has played out, uh, sure. rather than, yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than talking about how it plays out, but like an actual, like paint us a picture or set a scene of a story where this actually, where you observed this occurring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was my own personal encounter with Watiko in my family where, you know, my father, you know, who dealt with, we all have unhealed abuse and he dealt with his unhealed abuse, not by reflecting and doing his inner work, but by projecting out his own darkness and his own self-hatred i'm the only child onto me and that was in essence my trauma was you know having my father just completely possessed by this murderous demonic energy where i was literally afraid i would be murdered when he would go into rages and i hadn't even done anything and then while that was happening he'd be having heart attacks telling me i'm killing him and that kept on happening again and again as i was individuating as I was just stepping out of his image of who he wanted me to be. And then the worst of the episodes, you know, was so horrendous that I woke up the next day with a fever for a year. And at the end of that year, that seeming entity that had taken over my father was now inside of my psyche and was getting consolated at any wholesome, healthy impulse that I was living. 
And in other words, and that's what happens with abuse. There's an actual external historical abuse. The abuser exits stage left, but if the abuse takes hold, it gets internalized in the mind. And so here my father, he dealt with his evil and his self-hatred by just throwing it on to his only child. And, and you know, it completely radically changed the course of my life. I went from a happy, healthy, normal person, very accomplished young person, to not being able to live my life. And that's what kind of catalyzed me into going within and, you know, more discovering who I am and my work and, you know, the understanding about the Watiko mind virus that that was playing out. And that was a very real, that's not an abstract theoretical thing. That actually was a real experience. And then I began to realize the field, my mother and the psychiatrist, everybody protected the abuser, my father. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that was part of the revelation. Yeah, and, talk about but, that, please. I, that that was that struck me in your book where you, you talk about um, kind of as, as abuse occurs, it's not just the the uh, the quote unquote abuser and the abused. It's like a field consciousness that kind of like enrolls all the people around it, which exactly, you know, wh exactly. whether we use spiritual language for that or psychological language is definitely a phenomenon uh, that is very yeah. disturbing and that people don't want to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I love your choice of words like enrolling people because, you know, all of a sudden the field starts to protect the abuser because I was in the role of like trying to shed light on what was happening, you know, to not blame my father, but just uh, let's, let's deal with this as a family. And whenever I would shed light on it, I couldn't believe how the non-local field, my mother, the relatives, the psychiatrist, everybody configured to, it was like to protect the darkness and and then i became the identified patient i became the one who was the problem if only i wouldn't be saying these terrible things then there would be no problem instead of considering well what i'm pointing at so that's an example when i began to see the protecting the abuser phenomena that was like an expression of the non-local field that we're contained within and expressions of a deeper non-local field that's continually you know expressing itself and revealing itself through you know through moment our moment by moment interplay and that's all of a sudden to have a more expanded awareness instead of seeing just the surface of things and seeing us as separate it's recognizing wait a second there's a deeper process that's patterning yeah. like a deeper archetypal higher dimensional process that's patterning what's happening in the world i think one of the most powerful things about kind of viewing things through this lens this the idea of watiko is um instead of just saying oh that person is an abuser like stepping out and making it making it this field is the issue it's not actually an individual and i, I don't think just put pointing the finger at an individual obviously that has never worked for more than a you know a brief moment a brief period of time um no. that doesn't solve the problem and i think at one point in this book you put out everything humanity has done to 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 solve its its misery um at least on this kind of spiritual level has not worked so i think the the idea of watiko like just kind of zoom like i guess just zooming out and looking at the interconnection of maybe just a, even in a, a in a tibetan buddhist sense like the interconnection of everything but the ab abuse within that interconnection i thought that was powerful um, yeah. And maybe that's a good place to talk. I mean, you, it seems you were writing this book um, throughout the pandemic. And obviously, everyone's just been through this kind of a very nightmarish period that we're still coming out of. 
maybe talk about that and kind of what you were saying with this field of people in um, not just enrolling others to protect an abuser, but, um, you know, the general phenomenon of humanity of, you know, kill, wanting to kill the messenger, treating somebody who's pointing out that things are not right as the source of the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Well, it's interesting because um, one of the things that I've understood in my own process, and I see this with everyone, is that as we get closer to our light, to who we are, to creatively shining our light or expressing ourselves, it seems to always consolate these seeming darker forces that oppose getting closer to that light. And, you know, at first I was like interpreting that like, wow, this is an expression, you know, of how screwed up I am, you know, personally or, you know, but more and more I began to realize, no, it's an expression that I'm on the right path. Of course, as I get closer to light, it's going to invoke darker forces to try to stop that because they'd be rendered unemployed if I actually connect with my light. So I began to understand when the darker forces manifest, it's an expression that I'm getting close to something, that I'm on the right path. And, you know, and what you were saying before about having the recognition of our interconnectedness, that we actually don't exist. Like, you know, one simple way of understanding Watiko, it's the separate self. And if I identify with the separate self, well, then you're another. And if you're another, then there's fear. And fear is the superfood for Watiko. So hmm. having the recognition, you see, this is what Jung was warning about in the fictitious identity is identifying in a way with who we're not. And then we invest our life force in protecting and defending an identity that's an illusion, you know, and that's utter madness. And that's another way of describing Watiko. So, you know, to wake up, it's what I call the dreamlike nature that, you know, this is what all the spiritual traditions are pointing at in their own way, that we're having a collectively shared dream. And you, when you recognize that, we're, we're dream characters. So if you see that person and they're acting out Watiko, and if you blame them, like you were saying, that doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. That is Watiko. Yeah. But if you recognize... I, I want to stop you right there, just because I, I don't want that point to get lost. Um, sure. You said, when you blame someone, that is Watiko. Like yeah, if yeah, that's yeah. how it perpetuates itself, please, please like zero in on that and explain that because I think that's, that's so yeah. critical. It's like when you point well, out well, that's you're the, spreading that's it the, when you try to destroy it. Yeah. Well, that's the scapegoating. That's the shadow projecting, you know, that's the lie. That's the primordial lie, you know, in the sense that you discover that we don't exist as a separate self. We're all interconnected and interdependent. I only exist in relationship to you and everybody else and the rest of the universe who, with you, you don't exist as an independent intrinsic identity. You exist relative to other beings in the universe and they exist relative. There is, there is no separate right. self to be found anywhere. There's no things that are, this is what quantum physics was pointing out. There's no, you know, the universe is a seamless interconnected whole system. It, there are no separate parts interacting. It's one quantum whole system. That's the dreamlike nature. When you see that and somebody's acting out Watiko, instead of blaming them, if you recognize, oh, they're a dream character, they're a reflection of a part of myself, then all of a sudden you cut through the perception of seeing separation and you recognize, oh, that actually helps me. If they're enacting evil, wow, they're reflecting, I have a similar part. And if I self-reflect on that, guess what? I've just expanded my awareness. 
So let's talk about evil. So I, I was surprised. I mean, this is a very, I agree with what you're saying. It's a very, it's a very uh, Buddhist perspective, uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, perspective. Um, so I was surprised, I'm surprised to hear you talk about evil, but I know you mentioned in the book that talking about evil is taboo in, in our culture now. Um, right. And so talk about how you, how you kind of reconcile those ideas and also what is evil to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's a good question or good questions. Um, I, I, the f- simplest way I can define evil is uh, instead of an integrating, healing, holding energy, it's a disintegrating energy. Okay. And it tears apart what's actually, you know, in a unity. And, um, you know, and for me, one way of describing my process with my family and my father in psychiatry is that I had a direct unmediated encounter not with personal evil, but with archetypal evil, the type of evil that's portrayed in myths and fairy tales. And I began to realize, well, evil, it dumbs us down because we're not even able to talk about it because, oh, people get, you know, triggered or charged or, oh, don't use that word or there is no such thing or, you know, I don't want to put my attention there, blah, blah, blah. And all of that is a manifestation of evil that's in service to evil. And, um, you know, because there's no better word to actually characterize there's a certain energy that plays out both individually in our own process where we self-destruct, you know, where we feed our addictions or habitual patterns, where we are like, you know, creating a cocoon around ourselves that suffocates us. You could say, well, that's evil or in relationship where we're acting out our abuse on our loved one and it's creating suffering or collectively what we're enacting on the world stage you know, it's really important to be able to talk about it, to use the word. And, um, you know, and for what I'm pointing out, I mean, I think of Answer to Job. I have a chapter in Young's Greatest Work in the new book on Answer to Job. And he points out that Satan, this is a quote, Satan is the godfather of humanity as a spiritual being. Young was really switched on to Watiko. He called it a different name, but he was pointing out like I said, that evil has a special purpose, that God placed a special purpose in evil for us to actualize our freedom and to remember who we are, that it's actually catalyzing the evolution of our species. You know, that's what my whole work is about, that Watiko, it can destroy us, and it will destroy us if we don't recognize what it's revealing to us. But if we recognize that it's a living revelation, it can catalyze our evolution. And so it's actually helping us. And so I'm pointing out that evil, it's a very, and Jung again and again says, the most important thing in our world is to come to terms with evil. Evil has become a world power. It's striding across the stage of our world. We have to come to terms with it. If we avoid it, we're doomed. He says that so many times in his work. And how do we, how do we come to terms with evil? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, there's the personal dimension and there's the archetypal dimension. And, you know, so on the one hand, we were talking about projecting the shadow being the underlying psychological dynamic of Watiko. Well, the idea being for us to really reflect on our own shadow, on how we are colluding in our own victimization, how we are complicit in the madness and evil that's playing out in our world. If we're turning a blind eye in something in our in our own life, guess what? We are colluding with evil. You know, we are contributing to the evil that's playing out in our world. So the idea of really trying to own and the paradox is to the extent we own our own shadow, we access in an even deeper degree, our own light and our own goodness. So I think 
obviously social media has you know put a shadow projection on uh, on on steroids to a level that the world has probably never witnessed before. Um, and I thought that it's I, I think that it's interesting that you're saying that um, evil is not only to I, I think if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that evil is a false sense of being separate and and othering. Yeah. That would be a very simple and good okay. way of saying it, you know, and, and if I could even just kind of embellish that a little bit, mm -hmm. because, you know, and this is where quantum physics comes in, you know, that's why I wrote my book on quantum physics, where quantum physics is offering us the medicine for Wartiko, because in essence, before quantum physics, people thought, oh, this universe existed objectively, and we're just studying it, trying to understand it. And then quantum physics came in and, and proved, oh, no, your act of observation actually influences universe observed and i should point out that's exactly like a dream okay and what that means is that the act of observation is creative and um but what that's pointing at is that if we think that the world objectively exists now quantum physics has proven there is no objective universe there's no objective anything there's no things that are separate there's just the quantum universe, which is seamlessly whole. But if we think the world exists objectively, now that's just an idea in our mind with no Carlin in reality. By doing that, we've simultaneously evoked a sense, a subjective sense of us existing as a separate self. And so then here's the subject, the, the ego. And then here's the object, the world, and they reciprocally reinforce each other in a feedback loop that's basically an illusion generating an illusion that's what Tico. And what I'm pointing at is when you see that there's no objective world, all of a sudden, wait a second, if there's no objective world, what happened to me as a subject? I need a subject. I need an object in order to be a subject to be in relationship with. But if there's no object, then who am I? You see, quantum physics is shedding light on what is our nature. And our nature is that we're interconnected and interdependent. You know, that's what this is all about. That's to see through the the illusion of the separate self. And and when we do that, we actually discover that we're, we're not separate from the creative source of the universe. And you see, that's why I point out that the solution to the Watiko epidemic, because it's a collective psychosis, is to connect with our creative spirit. Let's talk about the family. I, I think one of the most powerful parts of the book for me is when you, and, and one that you know, is by definition going to resonate the most personally with people is your descriptions of multi-generational trauma in family and yeah. in families and how, uh, particularly parents kind of pass on their repressed and unlived lives onto children as a, as a, as almost like, a, uh, I think you use the phrase at, like their appendages of an unresolved process. Um, if you want to yeah. talk about, bring it down well, specifically to the family and because, yeah, the, you yeah, know, the yeah. family is the source of people's trauma. It's the root of. Yeah, totally. The family of origin. Absolutely. And, you know, for, for a number of, this is my third book on Watiko and my other books, I was contemplating, well, what is the source of Watiko? Is it, you know, some sort of collective trauma thousands of years ago, or was it like negative ETs or whatever? And in this book, you know, I really concluded that it's multi-generational unhealed ancestral trauma that gets passed down through the generations and this completely complements young talks about evil and he says evil regenerates itself over the generations this is what he's pointing at so to the extent that so keep in mind 
we are just the current blossom on the family tree. We don't exist as an isolated entity. And if, you know, our parents or grandparents or great grandparents, if they haven't integrated their own trauma and, you know, who has it to whatever degree, you know, they are fated to compulsively, unconsciously act it out and transmit it to the next of kin, to the offspring, you know, as if that's the psychic inheritance. And then the offspring, if they don't deal with it and do their inner work, they're just once again fated to compulsively act it out on their wife and kids and cat or dog or whatever. And and we are the current holders of the lineage of our family unprocessed trauma. And, um, and the way that trauma works when we're traumatized, the thing that is so trippy about trauma is that the way we try to heal from trauma actually creates the trauma we're trying to heal from in a self-reinforcing feedback Talk loop. about that. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. yeah. The, 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 symptomology, the symptomology, the pathology of trauma is the repetition compulsion, right? We're compelled to actually recreate the trauma. That is the pathology. And, and yet, encoded in our acting out and recreating the trauma, we are literally trying to consciously experience something we weren't able to experience at the moment of trauma. Like a beautiful definition of trauma is unexperienced experience. It's so overwhelming that we split, we dissociate. And if we don't then integrate that dissociated part, it develops a seeming autonomy where it has a seeming life and will of its own. In psychology speak, this becomes an autonomous, it's called an autonomous complex. Indigenous people call that a demon. That's what Tico. Okay. So then we're fated to the extent we haven't integrated that. We're just going to like, you know, act out the trauma. Oh, and we see this again and again. Somebody gets in a relationship and they dream up their partner to be an abuser. They break up, they find a new relationship, yeah. same thing. It's just a reiteration yeah, yeah. of the deeper fractal. Uh, it's like a recurring dream until they're actually able to unlock the energy that's informing and giving shape to that deeper process. And they're able to consciously experience that and have a corrective experience that helps to metabolize the energy that was fueling the trauma so that it gets rechanneled in a way that can be expressed via love and compassion and creativity. Why is so much of this taboo to talk about? Yeah. Well, when Watiko is in the room, it's unsafe to speak. It cuts our vocal cords. Oh, if we speak what's true, we get censored, we get deplatformed, we get demonetized. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an expression of Latiko, and that's that's endemic in our world today. Think about the unbelievable yep. censorship, you know, and, um, you know, and even the fact of, oh, it's not okay to have different opinions. So oh, I can say one thing about Ukraine, you can disagree. <laughs> Why can't we agree to disagree? Right. It's like, how how dare you have a different opinion than me? You must be yeah. destroyed. <laughs> right, right. Right. No, totally. It's like, oh, I'm convinced I'm in possession of the truth. You're convinced you're in I mean, what about if we actually try and dialogue and share notes and like honor each other? You know, there's something in the field that is getting in the way of us just having a dialogue, you know, and that's what Tico. How have you seen this change in the last, particularly throughout the pandemic and throughout this, uh, whatever this insanity that everyone's going through yeah, yeah, yeah. right now? Well, I mean, it's been in preparation for years, but it's radically changed. You know, I mean, first in 2016 with Trump, whether you're pro or against, doesn't make a difference. That, you know, there's a, a huge shift in the body politic. But then once the pandemic happened, mm -hmm. You know, I had just finished, you know, the biggest chapter in the new book is, is about shamanism. And I taught it's I literally just finished it weeks before the lockdown. 
and where I talk about that, yeah, we as a species are going through a collective descent into the underworld. And, um, you know, and that, so what's been happening, particularly since the lockdown, I'm of the opinion, you might be, have a different opinion that, you know, there are certain sort of powers that be that are trying to centralize power and control and take away our freedom and, you know, basically turn us all into slaves. I see that, you know, and I, I have all the evidence I need to confirm that viewpoint. Um, that's just my own viewpoint. I'm not saying, oh, that's objectively true. That's you, just how I'm not, saying not to Not to play Watiko's advocate, but uh, have you looked at evidence for other, have you looked for confirming evidence for other viewpoints? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my work, I talk about the incredible importance of developing what's called omniperspectival awareness, which is a 360 degree awareness, which is whatever viewpoint you hold, step into the opposite and try to see how the opposite, you know, viewpoint sees. Yeah, very important. Their blind spot and are they seeing your blind spot and then go around the circle and see it from as many different ways as you can imagine, instead of just seeing one point of view and not even being aware of how other people could see it differently and there might be merit to seeing it differently. And then when you, you know, you're privy to all the different points of view, then you're in a much better place to personally decide, well, what feels true based on your intuition? You know, one of the most traumatic things about the pandemic was that people were shut indoors. And, uh, you know, you talk about William Wilhelm Reich in this book and my own, I did Reich in therapy for four years. And one of my, one of, one of the many, 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 realizations I had is how much paranoia is produced just by limiting the field of visual movement, which like, like, it's almost like we're staring at these screens and these phones all day. And we have this tunnel vision from this technology and it's telling our brains that we don't know what's around us. And so when you come and which kind of, I think, breeds a lot of the paranoia and fear. It's a physiological thing. And when you combine that with locking people inside so that they can't directly interact with the world and they're just getting information online, that's obviously a recipe for disaster. And I've, I've never experienced as much polarization, finger pointing, rage, uh, right? incoherence. Right. It, uh, and, it, and I'm not it, saying it, on any political viewpoint, just like the pure physical, emotional content of people's interactions with each other. Um, right, and just the isolation, people yeah. are being isolated from each other. Yeah, it's, it's, um, what's your, I mean, how do we get out of that? Are we, are we coming out of that? You say descent into the underworld, which I think is very optimistic because it implies a shamanic journey. It implies that we're going to come out from under the underworld, but it just seems to be going, uh, well, that, that's very optimistic. Yeah. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me just address that because you know the whole shamanic trip, you know, involves and necessarily involves a descent into the darkness of the unconscious. There's a danger. The danger is to get stuck there, you know. But the uh, the pattern, you know, if a person becomes an accomplished shaman, and and I point out that you know we're all shamans in training. That that's the deeper archetype that's activated in the collective unconscious, and the shaman is the wounded healer. That's an equivalent term. And a wounded healer is somebody who's suffering an incurable wound. But instead of just, you know, identifying with it and feeling all screwed up, the wound becomes a portal through which they access their creative gifts. Thereby lies the answer. Because the sense of, you know, with that lockdown and the isolation and all the insanity that was happening, you know, during the pandemic, 
you know, like for me, I would typically write an article every month or two. I was writing a full article and sending it out every day. Mm -hmm. I just got completely, my creativity just like went through the roof. And, and that's, that's the idea you see encoded in the evil in, you know, young use of the word like daimonic and a daimonic is a higher dimensional archetypal energy that can literally possess a person or a group of people and the daimon is the inner voice and the guiding spirit it helps us find our genius our muse our angel our vocation our inner voice all of those things but if we don't actually consciously relate to that daimon and honor it it constellates negatively and becomes a demon and that's what Tico. So the and encoded in that daimon, in that demon, is our unexpressed creativity. That's why unexpressed or repressed creativity is the greatest poison in the human psyche. Hmm. And to the extent that we actually, by the lockdown or the isolation or the nightmare that's happening, if we can hold that to catalyze us even deeper into our creative process, then we're turning that potential poison and nightmare into medicine. That's really, I really like that. That that's really hopeful. I mean, I uh, yeah. Through all of this, I have gotten much more in touch with my uh, uh, my creativity throughout this process, and that is, I mean, just to cope. So, but it it was something that I was ignoring for a long time. So that that's really interesting that you p- point that out. Uh, you spend a lot of time in this book, also, just kind of talking about solutions, about you know, angels, about um, ways ways out of Watiko. So maybe. And 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 also about the call to shamanism as a universal thing, which I haven't I haven't heard before. So yeah. maybe uh, maybe walk us through some of the the brighter yeah, yeah, side. No, totally. And um, you know, like think about the shamanic trip. It gets constellated due to trauma. We become traumatized. Trauma by its nature is overwhelming. We split off. That constellates the shamanic journey, where we eventually go in search, try to retrieve our soul right well so say if i'm a shaman and i'm no shaman i'm just a shaman in my dreams and i joke with my friends but the shamanic archetype really got activated in me 40 plus years ago so i'm speaking from my own experience what a shaman does say if if you're a client of mine and you have a illness or something well the shaman due to their incredible empathy will take on the illness and taking on has a double meaning they like will have it out with the illness, they'll wrestle with it, but they'll take it within themselves and they'll fall ill. And if they stay ill, well, then they're no good. You know, they can't help anybody. They need a shaman. But the idea is that the would-be shaman, they take the occasion of falling ill and experiencing the illness from the inside as a way to even deepen their connection with their wholeness, with their true nature. And by them doing that energetically, non-locally, it helps the other person to actually you know it's being modeled in the collective unconscious and the idea being when i say we're all shamans in training we are all dreaming up this collective madness called watiko that's playing out in our world and we're made sick by it we have been sickened by it so we have taken in the illness and um the point is are we going to stay stuck in that and identified with that or just ignore it and dissociate or just become numb or are we going to take the occasion of us really suffering from the illness that is in the field that we're a part of creating and actually have that even deepen our realization? And by doing that, you know, typically in the myth of the shaman, they say then the shaman, when they ascend from the underworld, they always come bearing gifts and the gifts, that's their creativity. 
And so that's why, to the extent that any of us can access the creative spirit and bring it forth, you know, and share it, you know, and that can psychoactivate other people and inspire other people because that realization of embodying being a creative person is contagious, just mm. like the mind virus is contagious. And then that can go viral. That can create this enormous wave of creativity. And um, it's sort of the counterpart to the the mind virus, which is infecting in, you know, a contagion and just like, you know, people are just falling asleep. It's like the opposite of that, where there's like this, you know, trend potentially in the field of us helping each other to wake up. And it's what I call we can dream ourselves awake. And that's a real possibility. And that's to actually realize that we can consciously participate in our own evolution. That's really beautiful. It made me think of a couple things. One is just how powerful, unbelievably powerful and acted is to give people the permission to be creative because there people are not given that permission. They're certainly not given it in school anymore. Even if you want to be as specific as all those programs have been defunded, uh, there's no art, there's no art, there's no, you know, um, even humanities courses now for the most part. Um, the other thing that made me think, and, but just to, to give someone the permission to be creative and also to remind people that everyone has the ability to be an artist in whatever way that means to them. You know, you don't have to be right. this, we've been sold this idea that you have to be like some huge, you know, celebrity, uh, in your field. It's like, it's total nonsense. Art is a part of, should be a part of everyone's day-to-day -day existence. I think, uh, in terms of creating their environment and creating who they are. The well, other, yeah. the other thing it made me think of is, and, and I thought this during the pandemic, you know, the classic as, as I'm, you don't need me to, to say, you know, the classic shamanic initiation throughout so many cultures is to take the initiate and put them in darkness for, for three days or more. It, they, it's to put someone in sensory isolation for an extended period. And it, it struck me many times during the pandemic, how, um, hopefully fortuitous, but definitely bizarre. It is that that was kind of enforced on everyone and not just for three days for a long time. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you're saying is so right on. We have a flat, uh, flatland version of what being creative is. Oh, painting or drawing. But I point out, like, the way you wash dishes is creative. The way every moment we go about our life is creative. And this is what quantum physics is showing us, that we are creating our experience each and every moment. There's no one doing that to us or for us. We are doing that. The way we interpret the waking ink plot of our life, the way we place meaning on it, you know, that's a creative act. And, um, you know, and even more so, I want to point out in the book there, I have a chapter on this Russian philosopher, Nicholas Berdiev, who is uh, very into theology, and he's talking about the second coming. And he's saying, yeah, if we're just passively just waiting for the second coming, we will just only see the crucified face of Christ. But if we are actively participating in being creative, us doing that, we then are offering ourselves for the instrument through which the second coming incarnates through our expressing ourselves creatively. So he's like connecting being creative with, you know, the incarnation of the deity that we're actually participating in that act. But, you know, like quantum physics shows, it's a participatory universe. And it's not just something we can sit on the sidelines, just praying and hoping and waiting for passively. Yeah, talk about the the kind of the symbol, the metaphor of Christ, because you you 
you, I think that was a really important point of your book. You started off, or at one point you talk about kind of the crucifixion almost as uh, metaphorically God showing, look, this is what you're doing to each other. And, you know, I couldn't help but think, you know, of, of a lot of people that this has happened to in the last couple decades, you know, Julian Assange, excuse me, Julian Assange, for instance, who's still rotting in jail, um, that, you know, the truth tellers are always destroyed. Um, but then you go on to say that that can be, you know, the second coming perhaps is when we, when we stop destroying each other. It's like, we can, as you put it, dream our way out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I point out, and, you know, it's really, so I'm a Buddhist and I was, you know, I'm a Jewish person and here studying Jung was the thing that really turned me on to Christ. And because Jung kept on pointing out that Christ was a symbol. I mean, he's the perfect symbol because the symbol is a union of opposites and Christ is, you know, totally God and totally human being in one entity and that he's completely, you know, think about it like humanity um dreamed up a symbol in the collective dream and the dream was this christ figure and christ and i point out in the book that christ himself and it's in the apocryphal text i have the quotes he was teaching his disciples to see what was coming through him symbolically and symbols of the language of dreams and you know just in one very simple way just the the crucifixion is symbolic of holding the creative tension of the opposites you know and that's what we're all like being invited to do you know, when Jung makes the point, if we prematurely, you know, sort of repress one of the opposites because it's very painful and identify with the other, we'll develop a disease in our, in the core of our soul. But if we have the courage to hang in there and hold that tension of the opposites out of that, the resurrected body or grace, or Jung calls it the transcendent function, the reconciling symbol, something that the ego couldn't have conceived of by itself will emerge. That's the creative solution. And so, um, you know, when Jung also says, like, think about it, Christ incarnated 2,000 years ago, seeing that symbolically, what else happened 2,000 years ago? Satan emerged on the, on the stage exactly at the moment. That's not an accident. Think about the polarization. There's Christ, who's the, you know, the embodiment of, of the light, and there in a completely polarized, dissociated form is Satan, as if the wholeness was split into two as if that was an expression of the incredible polarization in the collective unconscious of our species 2,000 years ago. What Jung is pointing out is that God wants to incarnate through humanity. Now, not just through one human being who is kept spotless and pure. Now, God wants to incarnate through creaturely man who partakes of the shadow. And as that encounter gets closer between God and humanity, Jung points out, as does Rudolf Steiner, you know, there's another chapter totally talking about that, where it's it's demanding an encounter, Steiner calls it, with the beast, which is radical evil. And Jung says, yeah, the closer God gets to incarnating through humanity. So what Jung is saying is that God is incarnating via the collective unconscious. That's exactly what Berdiev is saying. That's what Steiner, Steiner pointed out, the greatest momentous event in this time in history, and Steiner was an incredibly gifted clairvoyant, was the incarnation of the etheric Christ. That Christ is incarnating not in human form, but through the collective unconscious. But Steiner was saying, yeah, but before that becomes actualized, we have to navigate an encounter with the beast, with the radical evil. That's exactly what Jung is saying. That's exactly what all these incredible, like, awakened people are saying. That helps us to contextualize what's happening in our world. You know, we're confronted. with What Jung says is very interesting. He says, the great problem of our day 
is we don't understand what's happening in our world. And he clarifies what's happening is we are having a direct confrontation and encounter with the darkness of the soul, with the darkness of the unconscious. And, you know, when, when you realize that, you know, this is actually, you know, having to do with, yeah, each one of us, to the extent we're actually doing our inner work and confronting our shadow, you know, then we are actually contributing to the incarnation of the deity. That's why yeah. Jung calls individuation is incarnation. He equates those two. To the extent that we individuate, we are offering ourselves as a vessel for the incarnation of the deity. Yeah, that's why it drives me so crazy when so many um, spiritual people want to totally cut off and deny the dark side. Or, you know, it's like basically like if you, if you don't if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. And if you engage with it, that makes it exist somehow. Right, right. And I, I get I, I run across that all the time in the sense I try to point out because I, I know so many spiritual people who, oh, I don't want to put my attention on evil. Right, 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 right. Yep. And by them doing that, they're actually avoiding relationship with what it brings up in them. And that's what Tico, when you turn a blind eye, when you avoid relationship with a part of yourself, you're offering yourselves into the hands of what Tico, hmm. you know. I don't want to pass up. You, you tell a really beautiful story in the end of this book about an experience you had w with a blind woman. I was wondering if you mm -hmm. could recount that. Yeah, for sure. So that experience saved my life. And that happened in 1981, you know, within 24 hours of me having an awakening. So I was deeply, deeply suffering and trauma from the abuse from my father. And I went inwards, you know, I just really, you know, made a deep dive into the nature of my mind just to assume the position of the witness. You know, we're talking probably average four hours a day of just sitting in meditation and then studying and, you know, for hours and and, you know, after almost a couple of years, I got hit by a bolt of lightning in my brain. It didn't come from the sky, it just ignited in my brain. And then within hours, I went into such an ecstatic state because I was beginning to realize, oh, we're having a collectively shared dream. And I was so enthusiastic. And, and theos, you know, the root of enthusiasm means to be filled with spirit. And it was literally like I was filled with spirit. I was so excited at what I, what I was realizing because I was realizing the good news, you know, that um, it freaked people out because from their point of view, I had had a radical personality change and I immediately got brought by ambulance to my first psychiatric hospital, Highland Hospital, Oakland, California, May 1981. And they bring me in to the psych ward. It was after dinner and they bring me right into this lounge where all the patients were. They had just had dinner. And I see this older woman and she's blind. Her eyes are completely opaque and I don't even think about what to do. I just find myself walking right up to her. And as if I was given a script, out of my mouth comes the words as I'm looking in her eyes, which are, you know, totally dead and blind, come the words, all you have to do to see is open your eyes and look. And I keep on repeating these words, getting closer to her, looking in her eyes. The whole thing took not even a minute and she regains her sight. And then, as if by cue, they take me and they strap me up on a, not on a cross, but on a bed, you know, where I spent the night. And then, just to complete the story, the next morning, they unstrap me and they put me in a room. And who's the only other person sitting on the other side of the table is this ex-blind woman. And she's smiling at me from ear to ear, not saying anything. And then my heart chakra just opens and I realize, oh, I get it. She was hysterically blind. She wasn't letting herself look inwardly. And she was ready to heal. And I was like the Uber driver who was just the closest one who was sent to play my role. 
you know, because those are the words she needed to hear to help her to, you know, heal her blindness. And then she says to me, she goes, oh, aren't you going to answer the phone call from Roy? That's my father's name. And then within like seconds, the nurse comes in the room and says, Paul, your father's on the phone because my parents had just gotten word I had had a psychotic break. So everybody in psychiatry was diagnosing me. Oh, you have this chemical imbalance, which had just been discovered the year before, supposedly. And I should point out that the same doctors who wrote the DSM-3, you know, announcing the chemical imbalance, they literally came out years later saying, oh, we confess. By the way, we made that up. There's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. The pharmaceutical companies came up with that idea to sell more drugs and make more money. And I never bought into it for a second. Everybody was pathologizing me as being mentally ill. And when you have an experience like that, and that was just one of many experiences, and that was a minor experience compared to what came next, but I, I don't ever talk about that. Um, but when I say that saved me, yeah, because I'm being told by these seeming authorities that I'm mentally ill, and you have an experience like that, that's very um, self-authorizing. You don't need any outside validation that, oh, something really profound is happening. And I have a chapter in the in the new book where I'm, I'm unpacking that 40 years later as a revelation, because I realized what Tico is a hysterical self-induced form of blindness, just like the woman. She had created her own blindness. And all I wasn't doing anything. I'm not any sort of healer with magical powers. I was just open to the healing that wanted to happen in the world. And I was just an open instrument to allow whatever the words were coming through me. And that was actually the word she needed to hear to heal her blindness. And I'm pointing out we can all do that. We can all be open and be in service and allow the non-local field to, to use us as a conduit to further deepen the healing that's thirsting to happen. All right. Maybe that's, I know you're short on time. Maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Please tell the audience where they can find out more about you and your books and what your, your current project is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, my current project, uh, it's due on Monday. You know, two of my teachers, these great enlightened beings, are coming out with a book on on the bardo and dream yoga and, uh, you know, the peaceful and wrathful deities. And they've asked me to write the forward, you know, which is a great honor. So I'm finishing that up. But then my quantum book um, is getting republished next year. But if, if people are interested, if they want to to awaken in the dream, go to awakenindthedream.com. That's my website. There's a ton of articles, all for free, ton of interviews just like this, all for free. It's not monetized. You know, there's no paywall. You know, people can buy my books or book or session. But I'm just wanting to get this information out because it's medicine, because it's really helping people. And um, yeah, so that would be what I would recommend. Just go to awakenindthedream.com. Okay. Oh, thank you very much for taking the time to do the show. For sure. Totally. Really appreciate the invite. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay, great. Bye-bye. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.